0: people coming in, okay. do the housekeeping as folks
1: are okay. Good morning, everyone. I'm George McDaniel, and I want to welcome all of you to this morning's session, and I appreciate all of you coming this morning, getting up at 8.30 after a wonderful reception last night and mm-hmm. other things, and so AASLH is known for not going to bed early, so you're getting up and coming to this session is, uh, is, is much appreciated. And with me is Carol Poplin, who is Director of H, uh, WH uh, Exhibits, uh, and uh, was responsible for the commemorative exhibit that we did after the tragedy uh, at, uh, at Mother Emmanuel's part of the uh, commemoration. And also with me is Elizabeth Alston, who is a member uh, of Mother Emanuel uh, AME Church, and an educator, civil rights leader, uh, and former member of our site council at Drayton Hall, and a friend. So we're delighted to have you here this morning. Tony Carrier um, was to be here this morning to talk about the collections, but she lives in Tampa, and for obvious reasons um, is, not, uh, is, is, is not here um, with us this morning. Um, You see several things in front of you. Um, One is a, um, and and you can share these around, pass these around, but one is a resources uh, for this session as contact information for us three and Tony. Uh, And then questions for you. I've been asked to write an essay for history news about museums, history museums responding to, to violence and tragedy. And I'd like to hear your suggestions and questions. And then also uh, questions from, uh, from an essay that I've written for historical uh, organizations uh, for, for, your, for your thought and response. And then also questions from a session we did earlier at the uh, American Alliance of Museums. So uh, that's just a resource for you. And also some information about the Illumination Project, which uh, Liz and I have worked with in Charleston. That's, that's, that's for you. Uh, As chairman of the session, I'm to to give you some information. I'm to remind all of you to fill out your session evaluations uh, and either leave them in the room right there uh, or uh, bring them to the ASLH registration desk. Uh, Also, I'm to ask you to please think about what part of these ideas and discussions that you can scale up or down to make meaningful, meaningful for your organization. And I hope during our discussion uh, we can hear from you and um, we, can find we can make this session all the more meaningful. Uh, also uh, at 10.30, 10.45 this morning is the uh, ASLH meeting of the membership and you are invited uh, to, to come to that. So again, I appreciate so much your being here. And I'm going to um, uh, begin, the title of the session is Commemorating Tragedy Healing Wounds, uh, Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and I going to talk about both how we responded to the awful tragedy uh, at, at Mother Emanuel and then also what we've done since. Um, and if history be a guide, we're going to have another tragedy. We don't know where it's going to be but it's going to catch us by surprise. It's going to catch us by surprise. So now is the time to start thinking um, about that um, and and preparing for this. I've written an essay that's going to be appearing in a book published by ASLH entitled Commemorations, and here you commemorating tragedy at Mother Emanuel AME, and that's going to uh, describe the work that, uh, the, the 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 four of us and Tony too um, have done uh, over the over the last two years, um, and I hope that can be uh, of help to you. you you've also got uh, for for further resources, you've got that page, and then I've been asked to write this article for History News, and I'd really like to hear from you, so that the article in History News is is, is germane uh, to your own work. And there you see my my website. Uh, so I like to hear any, any suggestions from you. Well, first of all, just a word about Mother Emanuel. Um, it's the oldest AME church uh, in the nation, founded in 1819. Denmark Vesey was a member of that congregation, and after his planned insurrection, uh, the church was disbanded and burned. And then after the Civil War and emancipation, it was rebuilt, and then the current edifice was built in 1893. Over the years, it was a center for the African-American community, center for the civil rights movement, and in fact, because of its important history, it was targeted um, for, that, uh, for, for that massacre on June uh, 17th, um, 2017. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, 15, I'm sorry, 15, 15, yeah. So again, my point is that this could happen to you. We've both see some, seen the recent example in Charlottesville, Barcelona, Manchester, London, Boston, the, the, the list goes on and on. It's, and the common theme is that it was a surprise to all these, uh, all these communities. And so the question is, what should museums, what should historical organizations do? And I one of the takeaway messages from our session uh, from our, uh, uh, our, our presentations, is to begin thinking about this possibility now and begin planning, and be proactive, and to get engaged in your community now, um, so that you can you can be prepared. You have personal relationships, you have institutional relationships um, that you can uh, that you can that you can depend on. In thinking about uh, responding to these tragedies. The response takes a personal as well as professional toll. We can all respond to that, and none for us as professionals has, has been a deeper toll as of course has, has been for Liz, who is a member of the church and friend of all the victims. Um, the response by the historical organization is both a blessing in that to deal with the response upslifts one's spirits you can see the better side uh, of the better angels, but it's also a burden of responsibility. So that's why you need to think now, and, about how, and then also how you can transform that tragedy into an opportunity. The awful truth is that people target persons different from them because they're persuaded that those other people are other. They're the other. And so they can, they can kill them, they can do awful things because that other person is so different because of their religious differences, their sexual identity, their race, their ideology. You know the litany. But that, that's the process that goes through. And I think that's what we museums can do proactively to help dispel this false picture that people create in their own minds that lead them to to think that that these differences outweigh our common humanities, our our commonalities. And just yesterday, we saw the excellent program engaging communities about what historic organizations are doing. After the tragedy, there's immediate sense of loss, pain, anger, and people want to do something and people want to express their grief, sympathy, hopes, their prayers, they come together, they come to the place of the tragedy, Uh, and they're hoping, they they want to express that love will conquer hate. So organizations that we work for, what can we do to sustain our better angels that we see responding at the moment uh, of these tragedies. At a Mother Emanuel AME, people came to the church by the thousands. It's become now a pilgrimage site uh, to express their grief, their hopes, their prayers, their sympathies. They wanted to be with others, either, and they wanted to either sing or pray or just discuss. Uh, but they wanted to do more than just express themselves verbally they wanted to, to leave objects there. And objects have their own language. It's a visual language, it's kinetic, they're leaving something there, it's tactile. It gives, gives an expression to their very deep feelings that words alone um, cannot. The massacre occurred Wednesday night and I went down to Mother Emanuel Friday and Saturday um, and uh, participated in, in that moment. And for me, it wasn't just an abstract experience. It was deeply personal. Liz and I have been longtime friends. I've gone to services there at Mother Emanuel. As I saw the range of artifacts being left there, it reminded me of the Vietnam Memorial. And I'm a Vietnam vet. And I remember how touched I was and what those those objects left in front of the wall meant to me. So, and, and, and again, it speaks to our better angels. And so afterwards, I thought um, that this was just an important moment in Charleston and America's uh, history. And so I called Liz and I asked her if uh, other organizations might help if there was a plan for saving these, this memorabilia. This was on Saturday or Sunday. And Liz rightly said, no, George. We, you know, we don't have a plan for, you know, saving memorabilia. We're in the midst of grieving, which I completely understood. But being in the story, she also responded that she had been thinking in the same way. And so, what could we do to bring other historical organizations together? So I called other historical organizations in Charleston, including the National Trust for Historic Preservation, South Carolina Historical Society, and others. And shortly, and descendants from Drayton Hall and community members. And we had a meeting a week later, a week after the shootings, in this very room to plan what to do. Uh, And then it was also uplifting to see that the life of the church goes on uh, and to see members of the congregation there. And there you see Liz and I uh, and others meeting with John Hills from National Trust. We began moving artifacts from outside of the church, um, into the church, and then here you see just a sample of the artifacts. You're going to see more, but just note that cross um, that we that we saved, and then there it is brought inside. And then note this banner right here. You'll see more of this banner uh, in, in exhibits. And volunteers helped us uh, store these. The city gave us storage space, uh, and then You'll see, again, more of the artifacts, not only left in front of the church, but also sent in by mail, and that's just a sample of the things um, that we received. We worked closely with the Charleston Archives Library and Museums Association, um, and they put out word to their association, and volunteer curators began working with this collection to, uh, to organize them, to catalog, and took the lead in organizing those, uh, that process. Volunteers came from those museums. They focused, too, on the mail. uh, And one person, for example, sent in a big box with 400 teddy bears. You know, what you're going to be getting? Well, I got hundreds of Bibles, one thing after another, all that uh, needed care. And the volunteers themselves, the curators from these museums, were deeply touched. As they read the letters, the poems, looked at the paintings, they themselves were brought to tears by the response of these uh, uh, by response people. As you're working with, uh, uh, after a tragedy with a, uh, with a targeted group, it's important to remember that it's a two-way street. You're professionals and you're coming at it as professional. This group has been aggrieved in a way that you can't imagine and they're going to have different priorities. So communication is very important. It's a two-way street. And that needs to be respected, and that's where we as professionals with his history museums need to listen and learn uh, from the targeted group and, uh, and compromise. We work with a range of people on our memorabilia committee. There you see us. And this is Reverend Goff, who's minister of Mother uh, of, of, of AME. And there's Liz. And then here we are again at a, at, a, at a planning meeting. We brought together a range of people from the community. Uh, and from museums. Um, Some of the lessons learned is that, again, it caught us by surprise. We could have engaged in planning sooner, and I recommend that sooner rather than later. And the organizations can only do so much because you have your own time, your own priorities, your own funding. And Mother Emanuel was not prepared to become a pilgrimage site or a museum. So this is where we need to work closer with them and to work back and forth. It's that two-way street that I described. But whatever you do, whatever you do, is better than sitting on the sidelines. You've got to get engaged. Now I'm going to ask Liz Austin to, sh- to share with us her thoughts and recommendations about what we can do. I've already introduced her, but there you just, just I've got on the screen just some of the the um, uh, her, her, her attributes. And if you can go down to, uh, to, to Liz and let me pass this down.
2: Good morning. As I sit and just watching the expressions on each of you as George spoke, uh, it, it gives me a sense of uh, warmness and, and inclusion Because I have met so many of you over the past 24 hours, and I feel that a bunch of papers that I'm always having, but everyone wanted me to uh, speak from the, the heart. I am a member of Emmanuel Charlestonian, live about six blocks from the church, and it has become a center of my life. And as George said before, uh, I think I have changed a little because of the events that happened on June 17th of 2015. I am also the church's historian and archivist, and over the past 900 days, I've conducted with others maybe about over a hundred tours uh, people come to the church on a daily basis, just wanting to be there. Uh, I must say that a question that's often asked of me, were you there? Well, I'm a day person, and at night I just didn't happen to be there at that point. I could have been. It has probably etched in my memory what would have happened had I been at 110 Calhoun Street at 6.30 that Wednesday afternoon at Bible study. uh, I have written 900 pages, I I write daily notes, I'm always writing or typing. But today I said that I typed them and left them in the room. So uh, I'm, I'm just going to talk about the tragedy. Like I said, it was a Wednesday afternoon. What really happened was Is that that, those of you who may or may not know about the AME structure, we had a quarterly conference. About 55 people attended that meeting, but for some reason uh, all but 12 left, and I've interviewed uh, about the other 40 or 39, and they left for various reasons. Brenda Nelson, who was one of the associate ministers, said that she had an appointment to have her air conditioning fixed. Uh, Ruby Martin, a, a lifetime member, and over the last month, we've had uh, commemoration of everyone who has been a member of the church for 80 years. So there's a lot of longevity. There's a lot of ancestry. There's a lot of history. But as I said, they left for various reasons. And One left because I had to take my medicine, or I had to go pick up my child. So, and then there are so many things that are happening in the church, and most people are now recording their feelings, writing their scripts. And in talking with George and Carol and Tony, even though I'm talking from a personal perspective, that there are things that museum people like you could do. I've spoken to a number of groups. I've been an educator, a principal, a a member of a school board, and everybody has various organizations and come to us from different perspectives. But getting back to that awful night, and uh, we, we can talk forever about it. There are hundreds or thousands of pages that have already been written about what has happened. But you could imagine that, from what I understand, by interviewing many two of the survivors and some of the people that left the sanctuary, it did not happen in the building upstairs in the church. It happened in the fellowship hall, sometimes we call the basement. You could imagine that as the night wore on, Bible study probably began at 6 and around maybe an hour or two later, they started the Bible study. Sometimes in talking to the FBI or talking to a lot of the officials, coroners and those kinds of things, he was invited in. There's a door on the side, on the uh, west side of the church, and that he came in. He was caught immediately the next day in Shelton, North Carolina, because we did have the sophisticated, sophisticated uh, surveillance cameras. So that's how he was easily identified. He came in and asked for the minister, who happened to have been Clemente Pinkney. He was a state senator, 41 years of old, 41 years of age, and he had been at the church for five years, from 2010 until 2015. And he, they had round tables there, and he sat there with them. And they were reading uh, Mark 4, verse 16, about the sodden earth and those kinds of things. And Myra Thompson, who was one of the uh, Emmanuel Nine, got her license that night. There were, as I said, there were 12 people. Nine of them died uh, when he opened his 45 Glock. You know, I've done a lot of research. You could imagine him going, killing them instantly, all except one. And a lot of persons made comments, "What if they could done?" But you, you're talking about a group as Obama says, twelve ordinary citizens who were reading the Bible with their heads down, and the last thing in this world that they would have expected was what happened on that fateful Wednesday night. As I said, there were nine people. Our entire, with the exception of one, ministerial staff transitioned on that fateful evening. As I said, there was Clemente Pinckney. The oldest person was Susie Jackson, who was 87 years of age, and so many things have been happening. I know their history is backward, but they reminded me I have 15 minutes, so I'm trying to uh, keep, at least trying to anticipate what you would like to know about that fateful evening. Aside from Susie, the youngest one was 26 years old, Tawanza Sanders, and he was an artist, and he was a nephew of Susie, and he tried to help her. Uh, the The fourth person was probably uh, Daniel Simmons, a 70. Uh, four-year-old assistant minister. He was also uh, transitioned on that evening. There was Sharonda Singleton, who was a life coach at one of our high schools. I already talked about Myra. Then there was DePaine Middleton, doctor, who was also. Eliminated on that evening, and there was Ethel Lance who was 70 years old, and she was the church's historian I mean, a custodian, and she worked at the city for a number of years. Uh, because of the hurricane, sometimes we have booklets, but planes don't allow you, but so much, and so which means that there is information that you could contact us if you want additional information about it. And as I said, about Forty-five to 50, 50 minutes, he sat and listened to these people and this pull out his fanny pack, and of course, he uh, shot the people, and they died instantly from what I could understand. And so over the next couple of years, the uh, next couple of hours, I got a call saying, "There's a shooting at your church." And I said, "Oh my no." and then right away I turned on Channel 5, which was a CBS affiliate, and Raphael Jones, who happened to have been the commentator, he spoke, and I could tell, you know, I'm not a, everybody has Monday morning quarterback, but I could tell something was wrong, and he kept talking about the incidents and what has been happening, and all of a sudden uh, he let it slip that a coroner was there, so we knew that someone had probably uh, been fatally wounded And my husband came in and he said, oh my goodness, they shot the pastor, they shot Sharonda, they shot Ethel, they shot this one and the other. And so for the rest of the night, of course, no one got any sleep because people were calling from all over the country knowing that I was at the church on a daily basis. Wonder where you were. So uh, then the next day we got all of these areas. Charleston I think is an unusual because right away the mayor who was there for 40 years, Joe Riley, and uh, the police chief immediately called it a hate crime. So, and then that probably stifled any kind of opposition or any kind of unrest that we have seen in Ferguson and Baltimore and a lot of the other cities. Of course, I always like to say that Charleston dances to the tune of a different drummer. So we find that all of these things did not happen but I think that the most interesting, and I'm struggling for words, uh, best was that the next day at the bond hearing when Nadine Collier said, I forgive you. Those were the resounding words that fell around the nation. And as I travel over around our, this great country of ours, those are the things that I'd heard last night at the reception. People just said that tears come into their eyes when they say a a lot of these various things. So I think that that went a long way to sustain any type of bad activity that you would happen. And then the the very next day, which was uh, the the 18th, which was probably a Thursday, I went around to the church. Uh, It was a crime scene. There were Uh, yellow ribbons, and I said, I'm going, and there was a lot of police cars. I said, I'm gonna see how I'm gonna be treated by the police. Miss, you cannot go, this is a crime scene. We went at another AME church, and of course, the uh, media from around the nation descended or ascended on the church grounds. And for the next couple of days, it was um, rather trying, but I must say that we did not miss a beat. Church started on that next Sunday, you know, that was Friday. Saturday, the officers met at the county library and church started. The church, as George said, is the oldest Amy church south of Baltimore. And uh, it, it, its congregation uh, was very large. And each Sunday, the church holds about 2,500 people. Because of the incidents, we have been downsized to a 1,000. And if there are 1,000 people that want to come, there are 999 wanting to enter the doors each Sunday morning. But being a Christian congregation, we welcome everyone. I sit on the floor if somebody wants to come. And of course, the notables around the nation has been there on a daily basis. I have uh, recorded each and every date, being a historian, I could remember, let's say January 16th of 2016 on a Sunday morning, uh, we would have uh, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Cornell West, governor, the governor, uh, the mayor of Baltimore, Stephanie, or Elijah Cummins, the, mayor, the uh, congressman from Maryland, Or my own congressman, Jim Clyburn from South Carolina, the Governor Nikki Haley, or Tim Scott. Or you just name them on a a day when we are having meetings in the office here would come. Chris Christie, Ben Carson. Mm -hmm. You just name it. The world has ascended to our feet. But we have decided as a congregation, and even though I do not speak for everyone, uh, forgiveness is a process. We are still in the process of forgiving. But then as I speak to hundreds of students from around this great nation of ours, I too have to remember that I now practice what I have prayed, Father forgive them for they know not what they do. So which means the humility, all those nice words are creeping into our repertoire. Uh, As we meet on Sundays, and uh, because of this, I was uh, very busy in many of the areas, uh, living in Charleston, I serve on our tour guide commission, and usually when Mayor Riley was talking, I'd ride my bicycle, I live downtown, and complain about what the tour guides would say, so I became member of the Turk Guide Commission, and wrote the Black History section of the Turk Guide Manual. So I'm kind of a little bit familiar with things <laughs> as we uh, go through this life process that we're having. And, and which means that for the few minutes that I have, I, I would like to talk about maybe <laughs> the aftermath. As I said, the world came. I was at the church every day. There would be people who would be coming, and even though the church was closed temporarily for visitors, uh, people would come as far as I think there was a rabbi and his wife from New York City. We we, we just want to come, or someone from L.A., or someone from Montezuma, New Mexico. Uh, We don't want to come in. We just want to be here. They didn't want to come in, and so that kind of touched us a little. And then people came with gifts, as Judge, as Joe. I mean, George, George, Georgie, can say that uh, in front of the church every day, people left flowers and all kinds of artifacts. Uh, Joe from California sent me five hundred the church, five hundred organic teddy bears. And we had so many areas that we had no place to put them. Of course, the mayor gave us space for a year at one of the city's facilities. And then later on, the Catholic Diocese helped. And then uh, recently, as of May 18th, the county council gave us information or space at the pre-release center in North Charleston, South Carolina. So, which means that so many people have come in, you know, the money donations flowers, and of course, the boys in blue, the Charleston County Police Department, I taught the deputy chief. (laughs) And so they moved them every day, and George talked about calm, all of the volunteers, because George was the one that called me, Liz, what are we gonna do? And we met a couple days later, and that formed the Memory BU Committee. So we have the Historic Charleston Foundation, as he said, Drayton Hall, uh, we have the national, I mean, the trust. We have the uh, South Carolina Historical Society, the city of Charleston, the Yorktown, all of the historic preservation. Of course, you know, in 1931, preservation began in the Holy City. And we're still at that for a very... So, so many things have happened. There have been so many uh, panel discussions, reconciliation, Uh, I became a member of a lot of the uh, predominantly white churches, Grace Cathedral. They have a book study and, of course, lives there. And so every Tuesday I go trotting over there, doing as I'm doing now, talking about just about anything that deals with the tragedy. Uh, Charleston is a warm and historic city. My family would say that that same Sunday when they came down, uh, people were passing out waters to everyone in the street, all of the... People on King Street, uh, people come around the nation. I've talked about all of these areas. So on a daily basis, you see people coming to give us love, warmth, feeling of humility, and a sense of inclusion. So I do hope that you know, what has happened, of course, sometime I have students and say, well, what do you think is probably the greatest impact, <clears throat> not only nation, but South Carolina? And I do can say it, <coughs> No water unequivocally was the coming down of the confederate flag and that was on July 17th that that has happened so over the years we and when George and those would talk about all of the things that has happened all of the organizations that have been forming we find all of these things so which means that i don't want to say good but you have to break an omelet you know break an egg to make an homage. So, uh, so which means that if anything good has happened as a result of that, then we can say that how can we use these experiences as George has talked about that's happened uh, in, in Florida at, at the club or what has happened in Charlottesville or all of the things that has happened. So we feel that we want to be committed not only as a church, a nation, a community, is to do things like we're talking about now. So what we're doing now is all of the history that has been written that could be in your archives, you know, in your museums, in your libraries. And not only that, but a lot of little things have happened. One of the things, as an educator, I was coordinator of the Ethnic Studies for the Charlton County School District and wrote a book about the contributions of seven ethnic Americans, it was called the ethnic history of South Carolina, South Carolina's contribution to American history. Not only African Americans, but Greeks, Jews, Scotch-Irish, and Native Americans were included. And so I think George was there, was on the 18th or the 17th of November, is that the State Department contacted me and asked that they are going to rewrite their curriculum standards and wanted to make sure that the June uh, 17th event could be included. And so they, they are still in the process. It's just since November that, so if we're talking about the aftermath, the things have been happening, so which means that history, the history will be written for inclusion for that particular incident. And so this is another way that museums and libraries can get copies of these areas. And of course you can visit Emmanuel. And uh, first thing I'm saying, the last thing I would say that certainly on behalf of our current minister, the Reverend S.C. Manning and Goff, who is our presiding elder, and Samuel Green, who is the bishop of the 7th Episcopal District, we thank you for your attention.
0: very moving um,
3: talk, um, but I'm, my name's Carol
0: Poplin, as Torres said, I'm the, the oh, sorry, Oh, yes. sorry. Please. Sorry. Thank you. There we go, is that better? All right. So, sorry about that. Good morning. My name's Carol Poplin. I'm the uh, director of HW Exhibits, and uh, for the past two years, it's been my, pleasure and privilege to help uh, Emmanuel Archives and History Committee and their memorabilia subcommittee to develop exhibits and tributes, um, exib- exhibitions of the tributes and memorials given to uh, Mother Emmanuel since June 2015. Today I'd like to share some of the information about the exhibits and discuss some of the challenges these types of endeavors pose for both the exhibit developer and the community affected by the tragedy. In late May uh, 2016, I was contacted by Liz and Meg Moen, who is the archivist with the city of Charleston, who told me about the committee's desire to host an exhibition of memorabilia as part of the many events planned for the first anniversary uh, commemoration. Uh, The subcommittee members had already held meetings to determine uh, how and where the exhibit could be mounted, which objects should be displayed. Uh, part of the initial challenge was uh, that only a small portion of the hundreds of objects left or sent to the church had been cataloged. Uh, the process materials did include about 400 prayer quilts sent from across the nation. As a result, the committee decided to mount an exhibit of just the quilts. They believed the prayer quilts spoke well to the commemoration theme Victory in the Valley and that exhibit visitors could find the quilts beautiful and compelling and appreciate their power as objects of comfort. When Liz and Meg asked us to help, we were happy to do everything in our power to bring the exhibit together. At that time, the city of Charleston already donated, um, or excuse me, offered space in one of their buildings just down the street from the church, and any A.V. equipment and tables we might need. Meg had uh, gathered the quilts together. It was going to be a real team effort, <clears throat> excuse me, our job. Our job was to determine how many quilts would fit in the space, develop an exhibit plan that ensured the selected pieces were arranged with a clear purpose and message, and choose and prepare the quilts for display. We saw the quilts as tangible expressions of grief, as well as prayer and hope for the future. Therefore, we wanted the exhibition gallery to be a contemplative space for reflection and remembrance and some visitor interaction. By the way, just in case anyone is unfamiliar with um, Prayer quilts, they're a special type of quilt that's made to warm and soothe the recipient. Many churches have prayer quilt ministries. The quilts are not actually quilted in the traditional sense. Instead, the layers are tied together with heavy thread or wool. As each thread is tied, the quilters say a prayer for the person or community who will receive the finished quilt. This is often a community effort, and the threads can be tied multiple times by many members of the donating church or church guild. The 2016 display included 27 quilts from around the country. Choosing the pieces to display was difficult. There were so many beautiful designs and moving messages. Most of the quilts we chose included embroidered or handwritten sayings and notes, and we tried to represent as many different places as possible. Once the selections were made, the largest task was to prepare the quills for display by sewing sleeves on the back of each piece so they could be suspended from rods. Um, this task took many, many hours, and I'd have to make a call out to my 83-year-old mother, who spent many hours doing that for me because I happened to have had some surgery around that time and wasn't really able to do all that. So, yay, mum. Um, In addition, we used the accompanying message from the donor to create the labels for the quilt or quilt groups. Some of these messages were quite lengthy and personal, therefore occasionally we used only a portion of a message. The quilter who uh, made this beautiful wall hanging that includes the names of the nine church members explained how deeply the tragic events had affected her and how making this quilt had helped her find peace and comfort with personal troubles she was experiencing at the time. Two of the largest pieces represented the international response to the tragedy. The Charleston Modern Quilt Guild asked guilds from around the world to send uh, four by six inch blocks with written inscriptions. The local guild would make the blocks into a quilt. Uh, The response was so overwhelming, the guild ended up making six large quilts, uh, two of which were displayed in the exhibit. And uh, something else I wanted to point out was this quilt was actually completed after President Obama's um, eulogy. And so the quilt is actually embroidered with the words to uh, Amazing Grace. The other uh, deeply moving quilt was a large cloth called A Love Letter from Dallas to Charleston. It was covered with handwritten prayers and messages, including a note from their church pastor explaining the large red stain on the banner. I'm sorry I don't have a close-up of that it was wine spilled during communion service, which they held before the quilt was sent to Mother Emmanuel. right yeah, they, can't, I don't, they can't see it oh, George.: I'm sorry, I'm Yeah, okay. it doesn't. This, it only oh, shows here okay. so. Um, As we progressed with our efforts to select and prepare the quilts for display, we learned that the church members were concerned about some of the smaller items left at the church or the fact that we would not be including them in the exhibit. We quickly took steps to make that happen. Charleston Museum offered to loan us a display case. We met with Liz at several of the places where the memorabilia were being stored and tried to select a wide variety of objects to display display. Teddy bears, handmade crosses, rosaries, angels, paper chains, trinkets, um, and hundreds of other mementos. We placed them in the display case. Um, When we placed them in the display case, we set them out randomly, one on top of each other the way they were left on the sidewalk in front of the church. Uh, On one of um, our trips to gather items, we found a box of origami cranes, We were so moved by their story and the message from the church in California, uh, we were determined to find a way to use them as well. I'll see some other pictures of that. Although the quilts and memorabilia need little interpretation to understand their meaning or appreciate the heartfelt outpouring of kindness and love they represented, we decided to add three additional pieces to the exhibit, a panel explaining uh, what prayer quilts are and how they are made, a panel with a message from the church pastor, and um, an invitation box. We asked visitors to reflect on the exhibit and invited them to make a pledge to help their community or family. They could write their pledge and drop it in the box. Over 80 messages were left the first year. They showed how deeply people had been touched by the event and their heartfelt need to respond. In the spring of this year, Liz asked us to help reinstall the 2016 exhibit for the second anniversary commemoration. The theme for this year's event was the light of hope. After some discussion, we proposed to Liz that we change the exhibit a little by replacing some of the quilts with pieces of art. Last year, the exhibit reflected the national and worldwide response to the tragedy. This year, we wanted to focus on the local outpouring of support, and we wanted to use the pieces of art to do that. The centerpiece of the 2017 exhibition was the large Charleston United signature panel. Every single surface of this canvas, including the sides and around the back, is covered with signatures and messages. The power of this banner is overwhelming. To complement the Charleston United banner, we kept the world quilts and the lovely message from Dallas banner. We hope visitors might reflect on the motivations of people who feel compelled to leave their name, a message, or a prayer at places where such terrible events happen, and to think about the role these simple acts play in the healing of families and communities. It was the topic I discussed with Dr. Lonnie Bunch, the Director of the National African American Museum in D.C., when I had the great honor to show him around the exhibit this year, His questions and our discussion made me reflect more deeply on why we leave flowers, a teddy bear, a balloon, a message, or just our name at sites of such great tragedy. Sorry. I think this piece just boggles my mind every time I look at that. Um, Perhaps when horrendous acts like Mother Emanuel, Pulitz Nightclub, or the recent attacks in Manchester, in London, uh, happen, people feel powerless, hopeless, and frustrated <clears throat> because they want to help and they don't know how. Perhaps a single, simple act of leaving one's name turns out hopelessness into hopefulness. Perhaps by preserving and sharing these gifts and tokens, the random acts of kindness they represent in exhibits like this can help communities come together and heal. Uh, the other new pieces in the 2017 exhibition included a drawing of um, the Unity Walk um, across the Ravenel Bridge that took place um, the same year, in in 2015. Several beautiful portraits of the nine church members, a painting by local school children. Um, There were angel wings, prayer bunting, and 11 other quilts from the year before. Again, the exhibition included the uh, display of small items, um, a second display case uh, with um, a beautiful quilt, that was given to the church uh, just the week before the exhibit opened. We had to scramble to find a case for that. Uh, The origami cranes and our message box again. Um, Again, the messages that we received were were moving and very encouraging. Um, As I noted at the beginning of my paper, there were challenges bringing the exhibit together, challenges that we faced both in 2016 and in 2017. Uh, some were technical, others were emotional. The technical issues are probably familiar to any exhibit developer, lack of time, lack of funds, and client expectations. In 2016, we joined the effort about three weeks before the commemoration week, which meant we didn't have time to do in-depth assessment of the pieces that had be displayed and the messages we hoped to convey. Uh, we only learned the commemoration theme about a week before the exhibit opening. Um, Funds were also limited. We overcame this by borrowing equipment, um, using volunteer help. The city was generous with their time and Brockington allowed us to donate um, two or three days of our time as well. Uh, Client expectations uh, are a challenge for any exhibit developer and are often the result of a lack of familiarity with the exhibit development process. The work uh, Mother Emanuel's memorabilia subcommittee took on was was not something that they sought. It was thrust upon them under the most difficult circumstances. It was and is a painful job that they are willing um, to do for their church and their community. Most of the generous folks on the subcommittee never put an exhibit together, didn't understand the many tasks involved, and justifiably were not in a mindset to learn. Therefore, it was our job to listen carefully and do our best to respond to their wishes. We reined in our natural planner instincts to ask a million questions about who um, who's the audience and what's the big message you want to share and what are your goals and objectives for the exhibit, etc. Somehow, those questions felt inappropriate and unnecessary, and the answers obvious. In reality, they, they are still appropriate questions to ask, but um, just a little more difficult to explore in these kinds of situations. In fact, in 2016, the subcommittee really had worked through uh, most of these questions um, as, at the time we joined the team. Uh, the other challenge we faced was an emotional one. Um, my team all lives in Charleston. Um, In the days after the shooting, we all made our own pilgrimages to the church to leave flowers or a message, um, some of us multiple times. In 2016, we felt very honored to be asked to help with the memorial exhibit, and perhaps we were a little surprised um, by our own emotional response to the experience. Um, I don't think there was a day in 2016 or 2017 when one of us didn't have to stop what we were doing um, and collect ourselves. Um, the emotions and the outpouring of love and kindness represented by the pictures and quilts and mementos um, often brought us to tears, and um, by the end of a long day, um, my team was often exhausted, both mentally and emotionally. Uh, I remember the day we went through the boxes and found the cranes and just thought about the, there's a, there a thousand and one cranes um, in that sort of part of the story, and I just thought about the work we represented um, this past year, I was going through some boxes when we were looking for pieces of art, and I opened a box that had um, hand-drawn portraits of the nine church members. And, um, you know, emotion just catches you, and I had to stop, and I had to walk outside for a wee bit and, um, and then come back in. Um, but it made me think that if I feel this way, and I'm struggling to work with this material, and I'm just a community member, you know, how does Liz feel? Um, How do the committee members manage to do their important work? Um, What can I do to make this easier for them? Um, I think some of the answers to those questions are be generous and open. Um, Listen. Do your best with what you have. Don't be afraid to make a mistake. Um, Resist the temptation to say, I can't do everything, so I won't do anything and remember that every action that lifts up others is better than no action at all. Um, Finally, I learned two important lessons from this experience, um, and George really has kind of touched on those already. Um, Build community relationships. We could not have been successful if George hadn't felt like he could call Liz if Liz hadn't felt like she could reach out to the city and the museum community, if the city and the church hadn't felt like they could call a private firm like mine and ask for help. Um, perhaps these kinds of bridges can be built after a tragedy, uh, communities rally together, but I'm sure many of the items left at Emmanuel would have been lost if George and Liz had not recognized the importance of preserving them as part of the history of the church, and Liz had not found the courage and the heart to take on this overwhelming project. The second lesson is don't get to give in to the negative. There are people who question the value of saving the mementos or found them difficult reminders of the events and want to forget. Others don't understand the power of exhibits to offer comfort and understanding. Then there are difficult times when emotions just caught us off guard. But if there's ever any doubt in the, about the value of our efforts, if, if Mother Emmanuel ever wonders whether they should continue to display these tokens of love and kindness, they should read this message from our, one of our visitors in 2017. Awesome. Thanks very much.
2: That was very emotional for me to listen, and I've listened all the time. I think that Lonnie may have s- sitting there, and when he visited the exhibit, of course, I took the opportunity to say that we would like for some of these m- memorabilia items to be placed in the Smithsonian. So that's something that we are looking forward to. Thank you publicly, Lonnie. God bless you.
1: I want to to thank Liz and Carol for for their wonderful presentations. And um, I wanted to talk about what we can do to sustain the momentum um, to move beyond the Kumbaya moment, uh, and what can we, as history organizations, uh, do to mitigate or minimize uh, the chances of such occurring again, um, if, if not if not pre- if not pre- uh, prevent it. Um, so that's really what I wanted to talk about. Now there we are. Yeah. And so how do we? How how can we sustain uh, the, the the waves of, of empathy and, and support? that come after a, a moment uh, in, uh, is that, yeah, there we are, yeah. Uh, after, after the moment right, yeah, I know, yeah, I know. So, and one of the things I think is to have faith in our common humanity, to, to play to our uh, our better angels. And there's no one, there's no one response. And we need to listen, uh, and it's not easy. This continuing, uh, working on, keep the eyes on the prize. Um, some of the ways that that, that have been done in Charleston and other cities too. And I'm going to just enumerate some of these as, as education, public programs, publications, and you, you've heard about the exhibit. And also, in more particular, a racial reconciliation effort that we've got underway uh, in Charleston. And you've got some uh, information in the handouts about that, a, a Charleston Illumination Project, whose purpose is to shine a light on all the corners, dark corners of history of Charleston, including its dark corners. Uh, one of the ways that we've tried to sustain the momentum is through education programs, and Liz mentioned that working with, uh, with, with teachers uh, at, uh, at Mother Emanuel. Another way is through publications. And then another way is through this, uh, building bridges through this illumination uh, project, which is uh, a structured process to work with community organizations, churches, schools, community associations to engage in difficult conversations but, but to provide a safe place for dialogue of where we can do that. And we wanted to start to engage people who don't ordinarily come to these kind of sessions. Uh, and we need to be very careful of the language. For example, if you have a meeting, it may be a committee to dismantle racism. Well, some people may come to that, but a lot of people won't. A lot of people who need to be discussing that kind of issue will just be turned off by the language. Uh, so we need to be careful of the language. We also need to be careful of the place so we go to where the people are and not expect them to come uh, to us. Uh, and so we watch the language and we, and we have small group discussions, not town hall meetings where few people can get up and dominate the conversation. And in these illumination meetings, consensus has not been the goal. But instead, the dialogue is the win, and that's more inclusive. Feel, people feel a part of it. It's so much of what we, we need to do, and the organizations have decided to follow up on their own what they've wanted to do. There's been no dictate uh, from us. So this is that Illumination Project, and you've got the, uh, some handouts uh, about that. And Just an example that I wanted to talk about is, is a partnership between Grace Episcopal Church and right around the corner is Mount Zion AME. And Liz has been so much uh, a part of that. We've worked with the, with, the, with the ministers. And we've had okra soup dinners. And the reason why we use okra soup is because that's the traditional dish. And so in your own community, there's going to be a traditional dish. If you're from Minnesota, it may be walleye. I don't know what it is. But you find something so that people, then they can talk about that kind of dish and keep it very simple. And here's a piece about okra soup, traditional dish. But you can there at the end. It says that uh, with a quotation from the granddaughter of civil rights leader Esau Jenkins, that okra soup grows uh, when somebody new comes. You can always stretch the pot. And so it's it, it just the dish by itself is a symbol of what we're trying to accomplish in the wake of uh, in the wake of uh, a mother manual. There's the dish itself, and then then we've worked with the churches, we small groups. We had a publication uh, that we celebrated and recognized about Charleston, the aftermath of, uh, of Mother Emanuel. And then also it, the exhibit that Carol spoke uh, so movingly about. There's a prayer quilt that you see. A Lonnie Bunch visit was so important. And this is a prayer quilt from people from across the nation, including uh, the United Kingdom. And there's the banner that you saw earlier that we retrieved uh, in front of the church. We've met with ministers. This is Mount Zion uh, A.M.E. So we met with the, with the ministers to sustain this momentum, um, and then uh, also the chief of police. We've incorporated the uh, the, the police very, very much a part of this process, uh, so that we can hear from them. This because it's so critical to the uh, to the, to the to the community. In fact, it was the Charleston Police Force that really initiated. The Illumination Project in the wake of uh, of, of the tragic Mother Emanuel, so we're using memorabilia to heal wounds, to heal old wounds. We had the first meeting that I described earlier. Uh, there you see uh, you see the banner behind John Hildreth, uh, and, um, and 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 Albert Olson uh, uh, with the uh, black shirt on is, is Liz's husband. So we we've worked together. Uh, and then the key message again is it could happen to you um, and we need to get engaged in our, in our community now so and then for more information uh, you can visit my blog site and the essay that I've written and Liz, Liz, Liz has contributed to it and so has Carol uh, you can visit that uh, uh, that website and you can download a copy of it so I wanted to end now and open this up for, for questions and you uh, Questions and comments? Yes, please. Um, you, you mentioned something that was really important, the idea of, of language and how we talk about things. And uh, I wonder m- how you balance uh, truth-telling That's right. and very frank language, um, particularly when it comes to um, race-based violence. That's right. Yeah. Or using language that is um, able to bring more people into the college. Right. The question is, how do, how, how do you balance truth-telling about race, sexual identity, and so forth? How do you how do you balance that with also the need to use more neutral language so you get people to come? Is that that fair summary? Um, and I wanted to... I can answer that question briefly, but I'd also like to hear from from Liz and Carol. I think, again, the key is to keep your eyes eyes on the prize. And so we know how deep-seated racism is, prejudice against, um, in in terms of uh, sexual orientation and other things. So if we want to bring people together, I think the thing is to get people together to come to the meeting, to be there. And then you can raise the topics, these more difficult topics, but that's not your headline. And that's one reason why I think it's important to work through existing institutions of churches, schools, community organizations, because you're, applying, you're, you're talking in a, high, to a higher cause. If it's, if it's churches or church or synagogue or whatever, it's in the name of religion. Or if it's community association, it's in the name of our community life or schools is the name of education. And so you're coming towards that purpose, and then we've called these listening sessions. Now race is very much talked about, but it's not in the headline. And then we've worked through respected community leaders, the minister, the principal of the school, uh, the president of the community association. So they're putting out the word and their credibility to members of the community to come so it's not the Charleston Illumination Project. It's, we're there, but they're the ones who are doing it, and we get their commitment, and then and then when we're there, we have to, ha- to have these more frank conversations. And also I think we need to be careful about our own assumptions. I remember at, at one of the sessions I made a comment to one of the other organizers, and I said, you know, this this, this person... It just made just a, a small step, you know, and, and we were talking about race, and didn't make just a small step. And he very wisely said, George, you've got to be careful because you may see it as a small step, but that person made a step. He got started. So that's why I think we need to, you know, in, in the world that we live in, we need to be very respectful of other people's experiences and backgrounds and their thoughts. Liz, you want to?
2: George, as usual, inculcated some of my comments that I wanted to make. But the language is extremely important, but you have to be careful who you bring to the table. In a lot of instances, like he, he did mention, and I was thinking as he spoke, about respected community leaders. Uh, so in the, in the community, If I'm asked, well, everybody knows that Liz talks with her mouth open. I will say what needs to be said. Mm -hmm. And so, but you find out that I I do feel that I have earned the right to say the hard things. And so, but it's sometimes, sometimes, and I've learned, it's the way that you say it. But if I'm speaking from the church, you know, the church is a respected area, and I think that If you're gonna have a meeting, you're not gonna have it in a club, you have it in a church. So that brings some kind of reverence to it. So at Mother Emanuel, when we have meetings, we always know that if it's gonna be held in the church, it's gonna be respectful, that the language is there. But if you bring committed people to the table, uh, sometimes uh, in meeting with people around the country uh, I heard this morning that someone wanted to declare like Black Lives Matter terrorist organization, but it really isn't. So which means that you have to bring the opposing views, but at the same time you bring respect, reverence, and you set the parameters so that the language would not be defeated in the, uh, you know, for the purposes for which it was intended.
0: In this instance, we, we didn't use, we didn't write content. We did not do any of that. We didn't think it was appropriate or necessary. This was not a, in any way us, you know, usually as a develop, tra- uh, content developers we're, we're translating something. We didn't need to be doing that. We had It was the minister's words. We did I, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. We did write a little bit about what a prayer quilt was a little bit of a sort of technical thing, but otherwise, it was the words of the people who donated the objects and the words of the church um, uh, out reaching out to the people who would come to the exhibit. So
4: In working with communities, um, it's imp- timing is everything, and so I wondered what process that each of you went through in determining the right time um, to bring up the notion of collecting, um, to have the first exhibit, um, to come together to discuss something that was so painful. Um, Timing is important in work with individuals as well as with communities. How did you um, negotiate
2: that? Well, as George has said, that the, the need was there. And I think that Charleston is a unique community. And I think that as a member of the church, I think that because I worked with a lot of the historical organization, being a preservationist myself, that even when the event occurred and the church was closed, I work with the city of Charleston in its cultural affairs, so people would would come to the church, and right now, by the way, things are still coming in. If they don't know who to call, they'll call the city of Charleston, and the persons, I mean, they were my secretaries in the school, so they know who to call. So which means that all of that timing is important. You have people in the, Charleston is, you know, began preservation, so all of that Pulled in all of the organizations was there. I think that it happened. It just happened to happen in Charleston. I wonder what would happen if it happened in Somerville or if it happened in other areas. So timing, in other words, the structure was already there, and so th- that aided in. And then you had people who were interested in the area and the church being a very um, old and respected church. So yes, timing. Uh, the uh, apparatus was just there. It was I think it was just divine intervention? You
0: want to talk about when you decided
1: to start collecting the pieces? Yeah, let me just. Uh, we decided to collect the pieces, and one of the reasons why we rushed to do this, it hadn't rained, and as you saw those banners, that's that's we were saying it had not rained, and there were the teddy bears. All these artifacts were out front and we began collecting on Wednesday, and it rained that night. But since the tragedy, it had not rained. And then, so that was, we jumped to it quickly. And then for the exhibit, that was a part of the anniversary commemorations that the church had initiated. So we work with the, with the church, or one would work with a targeted group, whatever that might be. So they control that. Not We, we're, we, we, we follow their schedule. They, they set the program.
0: Right, and so we were just a small, our, that exhibit in uh, 2016 was just one small piece of quite a few events that were planned for that commemoration. And as a developer, actually, I really didn't get to start participating in that as early on as I would have liked in the ideal situation. But again, we were just... Um, listening and reacting to what the, to the church and to when they were ready to start um, thinking about that, and even in 2016, there were church members who really weren't that keen on doing the exhibit. Were there, Liz? And um, but the subcommittee, they kind of pushed through and. And um, decided that it was important, and certainly in that first year, one of the fr- um, primary objectives of that exhibit was to do it for the family members. And they had we had a special night for the families to come to the exhibit, and um, actually we had a couple of days set aside for them. So, I'll get to you now.
4: I live in Eugene, Oregon, which is nine miles from Thurston High School. Does that ring a bell? So it was 1996 that a young man named Kip Kinkle shot his parents and then went to school and went into the cafeteria and killed and wounded, I forget how many students, 9 or 12. And you know, there's been no commemoration. And there was a fence and all kinds of things were left. And I'm haunted by what happened. I went to the fence, I I drove over to see it and all the stuff was there. And it was just me and another woman. And she said to me, I'm worried that my son is the next Kip Kinkle. And I told her everything I could think of that, you know, organizations, and she tried them all. There's been no commemoration. You know, it was 20 years last year.
1: Wow. I wanted just to add to that. Again, we were following the church and it's for the I think for the targeted group to decide what to do. Uh, at Sandy Hook, the school was torn down, uh, so it, some some so it's it's very important for the for the that targeted group to be heard from.
0: Right, and it's the community's decision. Yeah,
1: the community's right. community decisions. Yeah. Right.
3: Uh, first of all, I just want to thank you um, for the ministry and the stewardship that you, the responsibility that you took to act, all three of you, including what it takes to talk about it now. And um, the questions I have are many, but I, I underscore in my own community, I work at Cliveden in Philadelphia, the role of food as a way of sharing. It can take an edge off, but my question really goes to the role of facilitation in these meetings? Um, did, did, you ha- the yeah. did you have the training involved? Did you have psychologists, and, and, and not only to facilitate the discussion, but also to catch the grief, the emotions that, I mean, you hear my own voice catching here, but how, how did, in those meetings, you cope with people coping?
2: <coughs> yes, th- that, that's true. The church has been the recipient of a grant from the Medical University of South Carolina for the next three years. And so we do have facilitation and the congregation, the members and the greater community receive most of these areas. So yes, uh, and, and in, in our meetings, and as as you could see those of us who, I think sometimes they say life prepares you for the bad things that happen. and. A lot of the, the 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 meetings and the facilitation and the trainings that we've had over the years, those of us who probably civil rights areas, and so many of us do that. but before our time run out, I would say that the not only the community but the entire nation has come. I think there was a group from Indianapolis that they the town council came and nominated us for the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, my calls are being subdued now that. Uh, the uh, church is up for national register status, even though we are now a uh, historic site. The people from the University of South Carolina are, are still calling to see all of these things. So yes, we I think that sometimes a life of preparation prepares us for the duties of today.
1: I want to just respond to that quickly too, to, to what Liz was saying. Uh, training is. Right, and so for these illumination projects that I described, I received some training. The the, the persons who are are, are who have organized that are uh, engaged in polarity thinking and priority management, which is a new way of looking at problem solving rather than both, but either or as both and. It's much more inclusive, and I've learned about train tra- trained as facilitator through this process. But training is critical. And so, at these small group meetings, small tables, and so forth, there's a trained facilitator at each, uh, at each table. And at the beginning of the meeting, everyone is informed that they're to respect one another. You're supposed to speak your truth, but not try to debate the rightness of your position. Consensus is not the goal, dialogue is the win. Um, and you're to, to listen. To one up to someone else's truth, so in that sense, just that that structure provides in a way the freedom uh, and the security for people to talk, because they know they're not going to be hung out to dry uh, and embarrassed publicly. But that's that's the facilitation that cur- that goes on in these meetings. Thank you. Got another one here. Okay. Thank you very much. This is
4: an excellent presentation. I'm wondering if beyond the space of the historic church. Are other commemorative um, spaces or monuments or art um, being erected or installed in Charleston, or is it specific to the historic space? Thank you.
2: Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. You know, we have a memorial that's being planned. The architect uh, that's planned the uh, incident that happened uh, at the bombing in New York City, he's our architect. And so the there's also a memorial that at the Charleston airport that was done, so there are a number of memorials. The We are members of a commemorative committee that plan many of these areas, and there are other memorials that are being planned by the families. There are foundations that have been brought up by the families, and so there, and of course, this is just the beginning, because I always tell people that We are all historians and archivists and museum people. That 900 days is just the beginning. Our legacy or what we plan to leave, those are things that are being planned on a daily basis. And there are also persons who are coming almost uh, weekly about other ideas. So, yes, that thought is not lost on us. Thank you for the question. Um,
0: In that little um, looped show that I ran while Liz was speaking. You could see some pictures of the exhibit that's at the Charleston Airport. So that was the stained glass um, exhibit. That's where that's located. So. And
2: members of the church, you know, they go around to other areas. I think John Hildreth with the, uh, the National Park Trust, you know, we visit other areas where bombings, like the 16th Avenue Baptist Church in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. So, so we are a little bit cognizant of what's going on. And and of course, architects and we have planned persons who write grants to make sure that these things, the sacred, those areas. So there are almost hundreds of projects that have sprouted from this tragic incident.
1: Liz, let me just ask you one question. We've got you winding this up. But why is it, do you think, that people responded your fellow members of the congregation responded with forgiveness and other members of of the African-American community in Charleston responded as they did uh, but not with violence and hatred for, for the racism that's very much there, very much there.
2: Very much.
1: It's not that Charleston is innocent by no stretch of the imagination. So why was the response the way it was?
2: And I think that, uh, and I've been asked this question a, a lot, so sometimes I forget a lot of my answers. But, <laughs> but, but yes, I think that forgiveness spirit. And we talked about this before. Even in South Carolina, you have. Not this stop working. In South Carol, it's this is not working either. Uh, when integration occurred in in South Carolina, i uh, not any deference to Mississippi or any other areas, or sometimes we say, thank God for Mississippi, you know, South Carolina will be at the bottom. But in South Carolina, <laughs> in South Carolina, uh, with, when desegregation efforts occurs, there, there weren't that much consternation. Uh, Clemson, in 1963, when Harvey Gantt integrated the uh, Clemson University, there were no bombings, there were no shootings, and, and I think this kind of thing happened in Charleston, and sometimes I use this answer, I read the books like um, Wade and Slavery and Cities, the way that Charleston is built, you know, the carriage houses in the back was to control, so they have always been some degree of niceness, for lack of a better word, between the races. So yes, Charleston dances to the tune of a different drummer, and as I said, because of I Forgive You, and of course, African Americans, you know, we are a forgiving people. It happened in a church, and of course you find that the religion played a part in that. And also you find that the mayor of Charleston, who people used to call him, what, Little Black Joe, and he's very much uh, entwined into the community, and with Chief Mullen, who was the chief of police, they came right away. So there were a number of factors that aided in that particular process, and from one woman's opinion, that just happens to be mine.
1: Thank you all so much
2: for participating in this event. Thank you, Thank you for coming. Yes. We love you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for your comments too.